States Air Force Jack Veteran Dave the Lawyer introduces you to super interesting and informative people you won't find anywhere else. I want you to listen very, very carefully. Hey, how are you? Thanks for tuning in to the Dave the Lawyer podcast. I always appreciate you tuning in and hitting like and subscribe and letting your friends know about this podcast. In this week's episode, I talked to my personal financial advisor, Amanda, from Sigma Investments. We have a whirlwind financial discussion discussing everything from investment scenarios, budgeting, home investment, early retirement, early investing, IRAs, 401ks, compound interest, lost investment opportunities, and the future of investing. We also talk about weathering the various financial storms and the good times. The legal and financial disclaimer, we're not giving legal or financial advice. This is two people having an interesting discussion about finances. I sincerely hope you'll enjoy listening and get in contact with me if there's something you'd like to discuss further. Thanks so much. Without further ado, Amanda from Sigma Investments. I am Amanda Leonard. I am a certified financial planner with a small registered investment advisory firm up in Michigan. What kind of Costco wine is that? Uh, it's the cab. I want to say it's like eight bucks for the equivalent of two bottles, which is Not an mad. incredible deal. That's the first financial advice I'm going to give you for the evening. Is uh, head to Costco and get their Kirkland wine. It's fabulous. Kirkland. Okay. Yeah. Store brand, Costco brand. So you took the wind out of my sails because I was going to save like being a cheapskate and saving money. The end. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my, yes. my fi- great financial techniques. <laughs> The points I wanted to go through are budgeting, investing early, the importance of home buying, the importance of an IRA, importance of 401k, and then sort of a lesson on how spending money isn't really just the money you're spending now because you're losing out on investment and and future compound interest. And then I want to talk about the the concept of like thinking about every every move you do about your future self. And then at the end, I wanted to talk about the future of investing. Okay. So the first thing that I I regret now being an old man, if you will, is that I never made a budget before, which sounds probably completely crazy to somebody like you, but I don't think most people actually make a budget. And I remember the first time I met a guy who was making a budget, my buddy Jay Hemphill, another captain in the Air Force, and his dad was a finance guy, and he made a budget. And I was thinking, eh, I kind of just go through when I got some decent money left over, I spend it. When I don't, I don't. So I guess maybe what I would say is that there are some people that think it's crucial to budget down to the nickel. What I would say is I think it's important to make sure that you are covering your essentials, and so that's your rent or your mortgage your insurance, your car, if you have one, um, transportation. So if you don't have a vehicle, how are you getting to your job, et cetera? Um, And making sure, so you'll hear the phrase pay yourself. And what that means is put money aside into your savings or into a brokerage account. So the very first thing that you're going to want to be setting aside money for before you even think about investing, you want to make sure that you have an emergency fund set aside. So an emergency fund is usually three to six months of expenses so that if there is, you, know, you unexpectedly lose your job, we hit a pandemic like we saw right. in March. You're right. not in a panic when you're right. put into that situation. So again, when you're thinking, I need to pay myself, you might not have the income coming in. If you're just starting out in your job, you're not going to be able to save three months of expenses right off the gate because you're mm-hmm. spending that money. So as, you, so as you are looking at your income coming in, again, how strict you want to get on the budget is really up to you, but you certainly need to be putting money aside into first savings. And then you need to start thinking about your investing goals. So for some people, you mentioned buying a house. For almost everybody, retirement is ultimately a goal. But again, you've, you've got all of these various buckets that you want to be sort of paying yourself into. And then once you're beyond that point, again, for me, I don't know that we need to necessarily budget all of the, and, and we don't, we don't say, all right, we're going to spend 20 bucks a month on clothes. We're going to spend 20 bucks a month on going to the movies. Um, but it depends on how re- regimented you're able to be. And if you do find that every month you've got more money going out than what you're taking in, then yes, absolutely sit down and make a budget. Well, I'm not strict at all, but I do figure out what are my expenses every month, my outflow. And so what do I need to cover every month? And then how can I lower that without 
living miserably, you know, still live comfortably at a, at a level everyone can in this house can deal with and then figure out how much I have left over and then kind of divvy out. Well, like, well, we can afford to go out to eat once a week, twice a week. We can't go for sushi. We got to go for whatever, a hamburger. <laughs> and then, but, but focus more on ta- taking the money that's left over and investing it into something that's actually going to earn interest instead of just make, buying hamburger with it. A lot of people don't think about that until they start getting older and they're like, oops. Actually, you and I have, I think, both seen these examples in the past, which speaks to the effects of compound interest. Um, and all that means, uh, compound interest is when you put money into an account that's earning you interest, whether it's on you know bonds or stocks, or at this point, you're highly unlikely to get any interest payments on your cash in your bank account right now. But a while ago, that was um, a possibility. But compound interest is when you, you, know, you put the money in and you earn interest, and then you earn interest on the interest that you've already earned. Um, and so that allows your assets to grow at a quicker rate. Um, And so if you think about somebody that is, say, 21 and has just graduated college, if they are able to put aside $1,000 a year, and let's say you you take your average return on the S&P 500 over the past 50 years, which is about 8%. So let's say that this person puts aside $1,000 a year um, until they're 65. So that's 44 years. So that's a $44,000 outlay of cash over those 44 years. Um, But at 65, assuming 8% compound interest over all of those years, you're going to end up with just shy of $360,000 in that investment account. Whereas if you spent your 20s and 30s not really thinking about, okay, I need to save for retirement, because candidly, at 20 and 30 and even 35, retirement feels so far off. I mean, I'm 35. I'm planning on working at least another 30 years. But if you don't start saving until you're 40, to get that same nearly $360,000, assuming a same 8% return, you would need to be investing or saving um, you know, nearly $5,000 just right. to end up with that same pot of money. So if you are able to start earlier, even if it doesn't seem like a lot, you're still in a much better place when you go to retire and you're not scrimping and saving as much when you're 40. In fact, the hope is that as you go throughout your career, ideally you're earning more and you might be able to save more. It's that compound interest that's so magical because if you're 20 years old and you put away a dollar... And you're earning eight percent. The next year, it should be a dollar eight, right? Right. And then the next year after that, it's a dollar eight times eight percent, which I don't have a calculator in front of me. Would be roughly what, like a buck twenty, probably. And then another eight percent on that. So that one dollar you put away, and then you do that for forty years. I don't know what it works out to be, but it's a heck of a lot more than you would ever imagine. And if you just didn't think about it too much, or you didn't understand the idea of compound interest, right? So, the whole idea is to do it as early as possible, which to make it more personal, I remember I just got out of college and I couldn't find a decent job to save my life because I had a history degree. And I got on the phone with your dad and I said, I want to try to do what I can to buy a house, but I can't afford to buy a house. And uh, I go, what should I do? And he said, start an, start an IRA fund. So I did. I was only like 21, 22 years old and waiting tables at the Olive Garden. But I started an IRA fund and he told me, max it out every year, no matter what you do. And that was painful because I was 21. Save, I think back then the max was 2000. That Saving that 2000 was, was tough because you don't want to rely on social security. A lot of people do. And candidly, if that is the only income coming into you in retirement, most people are most people are able to live on what they've got. But our preference or my preference would be to maintain my standard of living throughout retirement. And I think that's what most people are looking for is not to retire and all of a sudden you're... I personally don't like the idea of social security. If you can live on that, it'd be tough because they're not generous with what they give you back. But even if you could do that, you're still relying on the federal government to come through with your check every month. And I think we've all seen... The government doesn't always come through. And I've had clients who are like, they literally need that money to live and there's something holding up their check and they're going two or three months and all of a sudden they don't have enough food to eat. Right. Yeah, it's better than nothing, but 
seems a little scary to be stuck with just that. If you could. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right. If you are able to set aside the funds, I mean, at this point, maxing out your IRA is $6,000 a year. If you're under 50, 7,000, if you're over 50, um, and that might be that might be difficult for somebody mm-hmm. starting out, um, particularly in the job environment that we're in. Right. But again, even if it's a thousand dollars a year that you can set aside, right? And it's- with compound interest, you've got a really good chance of pulling into retirement with a, a decent sized nest egg. Yeah, and the ideal, like your dad said, was to to max it. But even if you put away a thousand bucks, you'll be glad you did. I always think of my future self. That's going to be you. And think of it almost as a separate person. It's your own best friend, but it's it's an old version of you. And that old version of you really needs that money because the old version of you can't work anymore. And the old version of you can only live off of whatever you you, you stuffed away. So does the young you want to buy that New York strip steak, say $30 New York strip steak in 20 years, if you had put that, that $30 away, would compound to be several hundreds of dollars. And then the old you would go, man, I'm so glad you didn't buy that steak that day because now I've got enough money to pay for, you know, whatever my car repair this month that I wouldn't have had. <laughs> yeah. No, you make a great point. The other thing though that we we try to work on is um, making sure that you're also living the life that you want to live in the present. So it's balancing, really, it's balancing your goals and trying to figure out, because some people say, look, I would rather work longer and know that I have to save less. You know, I'm willing to work longer if I don't have to scrimp as much now. The only uh, detriment or the only downside of that is that sometimes you are unable to work longer. You know, you you assume that your good health will always be there. And that's not always necessarily the case. But again, there are a lot of choices that you make. As you said, you know, is it a strip stake now or is it having a higher investment account to draw on in the future? But ultimately, the, the ideal would be to have sort of a smooth path mm-hmm. where you are, again, able to maintain that lifestyle in retirement. If I ever wrote a biography or a book on life, it'd be called Balance because you got to balance everything. You can't go too far. You know, I'm not here to 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 sell people on being completely miserly and not having any friends and everybody <laughs> hates you because <laughs> you don't want to spend any money. You have no, to enjoy it, but... It's but, absolutely about balance and making sure that you're not... You've probably heard the same examples that I've heard, which is, you know, life is uncertain. The future is uncertain. So I want to take this $10,000 trip to Europe now because I might not be able to take it in the future. And it's like, okay, yes, Mm -hmm. that's true. Um, But the flip side of that is like, you're right. Maybe you pass away really early, but what if you live until you're 100 and you've not saved any money with the expectation that you're going out young? So as you said, it's, it's about balancing and trying to make sure that you're prepared for everything. Uh, to the extent that you can be. Can we give people a number? Like I've read different numbers on how much you should sock away of your income, but what do you generally tell people? Like a percentage of your annual income? I don't know that I have a uh, rule of thumb. As my dad told you, it's generally if you're working in a job that provides a 401k, max out your 401k. If you're also able to contribute to an IRA or a Roth, max those. And if you're able to have an additional taxable pot on top of that, uh, contribute that. But I always max out the 401k, always max out the IRA, no matter what. And you can do that for yourself and your spouse too. That's correct. Um, So with a 401k, because it's employer-sponsored, you can only contribute for yourself. With an IRA, that stands for Individual Retirement Account, and so that has nothing to do with your employer, although you do have to have earned income to contribute. And by earned income, that's wage income that you're getting from a job. So we've got some people that'll say, oh, well, I've got all of this investment income. Can I contribute? No, it has to be earned income. Um, But you could contribute both for you and, yes, a spouse, assuming that you've got sufficient wage income. If somebody's making 50000 a year, can they contribute, max it out for them and their spouse? Or how does it work? Is Like, what are the limits? Yeah. So if you're making $50,000 a year, you could contribute to a, a traditional or a Roth IRA for both yourself and your spouse. You could contribute, again, 6000 if you're under age 50 and 7000 if you're over 50. Okay. And then if you have access to a 401k plan or a 403b 
or a simple or a SEP, any, any account that's through your employer, there's, it's called salary deferral limits. Um, and that's the amount of your salary that you can sack away into a 401k. And so for 2020, it's 19,500 if you're under 50. And if you're over 50, you can contribute an additional 6,500 into a 401k or 403b for a total of 26,000 that you could defer from your salary. But again, with a 401k or 403b, there's no spousal component because that's through your employer and your spouse is not employed by your employer. You just touched on something that I wanted to talk about. I kind of be glossed on it a little bit, but it's this concept of it's a lot more comfortable to see this a lot of money in your savings account. It's like, oh, I could go to Europe, like you say. I could go skiing. We could do this. We could do that. And if your bank account is very small, it kind of feels like, oh, why am I working so hard if there's only a few thousand dollars in the savings account? And if it's in an IRA, it's like, oh, I can't touch that till I'm an old fogey, right? Yeah. But then you start getting closer to the old fogey <laughs> and you start logging into those accounts and you start going, yeah, I'm really glad I did that. You, when you take the money and you're putting it in an investment account, it's still your money and it could be used for something fun later. Sacrifice it now so that it'll grow way more. Because like you said, if it's in a, if it's in a bank account, you're really losing money because the dollar devaluates over time on an average of like 4%. So if you put $1,000 in the savings account and you don't invest it next year, it's worth less because a thousand bucks has less spending power next year than it did this year. Uh, discussing that, a lot of people don't think about that. So something that we haven't touched on at all is risk and your ability to withstand the ups and downs of the market. I've talked about an 8% average annual return. It is extremely rare that the market actually returns 8% in any given year. If you look at this year, the, you know, the headlines today were Dow goes negative for 2020. Um, mm. So we're really looking at year to date, a flat or zero return. Last year, there were incredible returns. Uh, the Dow or the S&P 500 returned around 20%. But then you look into you know 2018, where we were modestly down for the year. So again, you really don't get that consistent 8% return each year. And so it is a question of, can you handle that volatility? And should you be able to, you know, are you being too risky for your age? So when we discussed that compound return example earlier, it was a consistent 8%. Typically, the advice is as you get closer to retirement or as you get closer to needing the funds that you're investing, you want to get more conservative with your investments um, just because you want to be sure that those funds are there for you when you need them. And so if you have a down year, if you're in a situation like March um, of this year where we were down 30%, you don't want to be pulling and selling equities or stocks um, when you're in a down market like that. So you want to make sure that there's something in that portfolio that's going to maintain its value a little bit better. And so in that case, you're looking at like fixed income or bonds, which again, have a little bit more stability than the equity market, which is extremely volatile. So again, as you're looking at this, it's okay, I'm going to get a little bit more conservative as I get closer to needing funds. So the return's not as high, but again, you want to be sure that you're balancing your risk versus your return. And beyond just an age thing, some people cannot handle the volatility, the equity swings. It's, uh, it's emotional. Money is very emotional. This is what you're relying on for your retirement or for a home or for you know, sending your kids to college, right? There are all of these hopes and dreams that you've got. You're tied up or your money is tied up in these hopes and dreams. You're hoping to accomplish these things and money makes it a lot easier. And so for some people, they go, oh my gosh, I looked at my March statement and my account was two thirds of what it was at the end of February and I'm heartbroken. I'm you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I am panicked and I want to sell everything. And that's about the worst thing you could do. If you would have imagined, if you would have sold out in March, you would have gotten none of the recovery that we've seen since March. Well, let me interject and tell something fun because I called you up in March. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I think I want to convert everything to cash. And then I called you up again about a month ago. And I'm like, okay, this time I really want to convert all my stuff to cash. And you, you reminded me of the Warren Buffett rule, which is just kind of 
put it in there and stop looking at it. Yeah, I mean, I think actually that March has been a fantastic lesson for people um, just in not trying to time the market and not pulling out because we're going to see a lot more of that. You've got a really contentious election coming up, and I would not be surprised if you're going to see a lot of volatility in the lead up to the market. If you sell out at the bottom, and good luck guessing the bottom, I wouldn't have told you that late March was the bottom. I couldn't have guessed. Um, But if you sell out at the bottom, there's no chance of getting the recovery. So again, it's making sure that you've got the right mix of stocks and bonds, that you know that you're in it for the long term, um, and you've got the emotional fortitude to withstand those ups and downs. I get sweaty palms when it's time to look at my finances. It is very emotional. And so I generally only try to look at my IRAs once a year when I'm going to deposit more money. And then it's like, okay, well, let's see what happened this year. Because I won't look at it every month. If I did that, I'd be calling you and panicking even more than I already do. Yeah, no, I um, I know that seems counterintuitive, but that's really the best thing that you can do. You shouldn't be trying to time the market. That's a fool's errand. Again, you have to call it twice. You have to figure out where the top is and where the bottom is. Um, and if anybody was so successful in doing that, I don't think that they'd be working with other people because they'd be making buckets of money, not having to think about anybody other than, you know, right. what is the market doing right now? Great. I'm in. You can get a ton of people all looking at the same data and coming to different conclusions. Everything that's happened with all these companies shutting down and unemployment, I don't understand why it hasn't crashed more other than it's just the Fed pumping more money into the system. But that's probably a can of worms you don't want to talk about. <laughs> Um, No, I I think that's part of it is the Fed is propping up the economy right now with all of the stimulus that's flowing into the country. Part of it, have you heard the acronym there, or TINA, there is no alternative? No, Um, that's a scary one. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So basically, interest rates are so low right now. Uh, A 10-year treasury is paying you around 0.6%. It doesn't even keep up with inflation. No, no, it's interest rates are so, I mean, but you're seeing it with home mortgage rates are um, dropping. If you're not going to get paid to be sitting in bonds, Mm -hmm. you're almost being forced into equities. I think that's part of it. Um, Mm -hmm. And then additionally, um, I think the market is forward looking. And I think that you are seeing, you know, Amazon was already a behemoth that had eaten up a whole bunch of mom and pop stores. But again, with the pandemic, you saw how valuable Amazon was. Um, And you've got a lot of companies like Zoom, which we're on right now, Mm -hmm. um, that have gotten a lot more popular. I think that there are so many innovations coming our way. And again, I think the market is forward looking. If you look at like NVIDIA is a chip maker um, and the ability for their chips to you know, solve problems and you've got so much more data that's being able to fit on these chips. But if you think about the Amazon grab and go stores where you would walk in and there would be cameras sensing everything. So you pick up a can of deodorant and you decide that you're taking this can of deodorant home These cameras are tracking you. There's sending this information back to these NVIDIA chips in the back, um, which are running thousands of algorithms. And, you know, okay, David's got his $2 can of deodorant. You walk out the door and your phone, which you've linked your Apple Pay or your credit card to, gets hit with the bill you know, it's it's contactless. It's yeah. so easy. So you've got all of this innovation. And I think that that is really what is driving the market. That's very optimistic. I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what I would say is, has the market ever not recovered and gone on to greater highs? I, I am very eventually, optimistic about yes, American eventually. innovation yeah. and, and global innovation. Mm-hmm. I mean, you you look at where we have come over the past number of years and you've got more people coming out of poverty and That's standards true. of living are improving and you've you're got right. so much like so much technological innovation. So in our phones right now, and I know mm-hmm. you've seen these memes, but like mm-hmm. in my phone 20 years ago, Mm-hmm. Would it have been 20 years ago? 15 years ago, you had like the iPod and your cell phone and your digital camera right. um, and your calculator, your TI-83 that you took to class. Right. And now all of that is on you know, one device. Yeah, I remember in 2000, I was in law school and I got my, I held out forever to get a cell phone. And it was just, all it did was make calls. And I remember telling my roommate, I go, I bet in 10 years, 
it's going to be like Star Trek where it's going to be a camera, GPS, and they're going to put it all into one device. Yeah. And man, did they ever. And now it's just like way beyond Star Trek even. Yeah, no, it's, it is incredible. And when you consider like the wearables market, and again, mm-hmm. I am enthusiastic about our future. I think that, I think that there are a lot of great things coming. I am confident that you're going to see, you know, a lot of, a lot of good, a lot of improvement come out of this pandemic. I still feel cheated with the flying cars, though. When I was a kid, they said, yeah, we'll be flying cars. (laughs) And there's still no flying cars. (laughs) No jetpacks, no flying cars. Oh, my gosh. By the year 2000, all of that was supposed to be figured out, right? (laughs) Yeah, I feel cheated. (laughs) (laughs) Did you see that actually it was like a Japanese company actually has like a a drone that a guy was sitting in? It's like the flying car. No, I haven't seen that. It came out like a week ago. It It was like a four propeller drone. And a guy was sitting in the middle of it and he looked like an astronaut and they, he was just floating, but they claimed that like, yeah, they're there. He could actually oh fly gosh. around. So That'll be wild when they've got that figured out. I yeah. mean, you've already got like the ground traffic, but all of a sudden you've got the ability to go up and down. It'll be interesting to see how that gets regulated and sort of made safe, right? I'll, I'll feel a lot more comfortable about it if it's a computer driving it and not some drunk human being. then the other thing i wanted to talk to you next about was was home buying i think your dad said to me what's what you get to the point where you max out the ira and then you've got some extra money after that buy a home so they say it's location 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 but i say it's timing 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 oh well that's true of everything though isn't it right sometimes it's better to rent but i think Mm -hmm. it's more a component of like how long you're going to be in a place True. I'm, I'm sure that you're aware, like for a very long time, home ownership was the way that Americans sort of earned most of their equity. They built up equity in their home, purchased something, you took out a mortgage, and then as you paid that off, you know, you came into retirement and you've got your house paid off. And, and again, that's actually how a lot of generational wealth is transferred is through a home, right? Coming back to sort of the rent or buy, it's less about trying to time the market again. If, if you're thinking of a home as an investment, right, when you think of sort of generic investment rules, you want to be diversified. I'm sure you've heard that hammered home like a billion times. Well, if it's the home you're living in, you're not really diversified across locations or across, you know, like... You want to explain that concept real quick to somebody who might not know about that? Yeah. yeah. So when you say that you want to be diversified, you don't want, you know, you've heard the phrase, don't put all of your eggs in one basket. So when you're looking at investing, even though there's a lot of potential reward for, you know, if you're somebody that gets in at Apple when it's trading at 15 bucks a share, all of a sudden now you're many hundreds of thousands of dollars richer. There's a lot of reward for going in on only one security, but there's also the opportunity or the high likelihood that you're going to lose your shirt and lose everything. So you're better off trying to pick a number of holdings and and a number of holdings may not be the right phrase because you can get a lot of diversification in say a mutual fund or an exchange traded fund that tracks an index, which would hold say 500 different stocks all in that one umbrella or one uh, ticker. Yeah. Can I cut in real quick? So like, for example, if you had all your money in Amazon, it's great. But if Amazon goes broke tomorrow, let's say we let's say it's in Delta Airlines, and suddenly there's a pandemic, and God forbid Delta Airlines goes broke, suddenly everything you have is gone. Yeah, I mean, look at GE. That was really well run until right. it wasn't. Right. So if you had everything in GE, maybe you were doing great for a long time, but five years ago, all of a sudden, or I think it was five years ago, you're now in trouble. Um, So you don't want to be invested in only one thing. You really want to diversify your assets. If you, you know, if you have this available to you in your 401k or if you have a brokerage account that you've opened up, um, get something that will track, say, the S&P 500 index. The S&P 500 is the 500 largest U.S. companies. Um, It's names you're familiar with. It's Apple. It's Amazon, like we've been talking about. It's Delta. It's, you know, all of these companies that you're used to shopping at and with. And so if you're able to have all of these, yes, um, not going to have the insane return that you would have gotten if you were only invested in Apple, but you're also not going to have, you know, the equally probable chance of picking only a GE stock. Um, and it's back to the, the slowly but surely wins the race argument to wealth because generally over time, it's been an average of 8% per annum. Right. Versus, you know, you're not going to make a killing 
But in the long run, you like the tortoise and the hare, just keep running the race. In the long run, you'll win the race. Yeah. Um, but so tying that back to real estate, because you're absolutely dead on, um, really, when you're looking at purchasing your home, yes, it is an investment in your future, but you're probably not looking to, I don't think most people are looking to flip it in, say, three years. And that's sort of about the threshold is three years. So when you're thinking, all right, do I want to buy or do I want to rent? Sometimes you'll manage to get in and out at the right time. Um, but in three years, you generally are not even going to recover your closing costs on both ends. So when you're trying to decide, am I buying or am I renting? Is it somewhere that you're looking to live for three years? At, at some point, it might not be a, is this the best financial decision? But Sometimes what's not necessarily the best financial decision may be the right decision for you. Um, so you might be going, look, I've rented for 10 years military. At this point, I just want a place that I can paint. You know, I want to be able to paint it and make changes and update the kitchen. And if I lose my shirt on this one, you know, I'm, I'm financially secure enough. I've been contributing to my IRA. I've been contributing to my 401k. I've got my emergency fund over here. You know, sometimes you might get to the point where you go, look, it's not the, it's not the optimal financial decision, but it's not going to break me if I don't squeeze every bit of value out of it. I think I went through once and I tried to figure out if the, ho if the housing market was more valuable than the S&P 500 over the last 100 years. You say that and we come back to diversification. Right. And if you own the S&P 500, you, you're guaranteed that 8%. If you're out in Florida, you know, maybe you're getting that 9% and it's more valuable for you to be putting equity in your home. If you're out in, you know, Podunk, Michigan, where I'm at, it's likely that the home prices haven't appreciated as That's much. true. I mean, you got and a so good it's, point. So it's coming back to that diversification. Now you have a good point. But thank you. Here's another question, and that's paying off a mortgage early. I'll tell you my philosophy. Okay. This is something that I've had many arguments with people over. Again, I'm a nerd. This is the kind of stuff I talk about in my free time. But if I have a mortgage that's less than 4%, because inflation is generally 4% over time. So if I have a mortgage that's less than 4%, so let's say it's 3%, I'm better off not paying it early because in essence, I'm making money by, by dragging my feet to pay that mortgage off. Do you understand what I'm saying? I follow. And, and a similar sort of line of thought is if you've also got assets in the stock market and you again come back to that 8% return, you're likely getting a better return on the stock market than you are taking the funds out of the stock market to pay your mortgage. Yes. My money is better served in the stock market than it is paying that mortgage off early. Because I can make more money if I take that dollar and I put it towards the mortgage, I'm paying the mortgage down, which psychologically feels phenomenal, I can mm -hmm. tell you. Because the mortgage, the more I see it drop, the more I'm like, oh, there's a psychological <laughs> aspect to it. But why not take that dollar, put it in the S&P 500 and let it compound over the next 30 years? For those who aren't disciplined enough to take that money that they would have used to pay it down and are actually disciplined enough to put it in an investment like the S&P 500, which a lot of people just don't have that discipline and they'll blow it on frills. Those people should definitely pay down their mortgage because paying off that mortgage is a huge pain off of your monthly bill. I mean, who doesn't know that? Mm -hmm. yeah. the mortgage is a huge hit every month. You are, you're dead on. There's sort of two places where I would not disagree, but would just because you're spot on, um, but coming back to the sometimes the best decision for you is not always the best decision financially, right? That doesn't mean go crazy, be silly, but for some people, there is that comfort of knowing, okay, look, my house is paid off. Yeah. So if I, you know, if I get into a difficult situation, I don't have this mortgage hanging over me. Yeah, you've got your property taxes. You have to be able to pay the lights and the electricity, or excuse me, the electricity and the water. You know, but not having that mortgage for some people, it's better to have that weight lifted off of their shoulders. And as you said, you know, some people don't have the ability to save the additional funds to put in the stock market. Um, and then the other thing to think about when you're looking at a, should I pay off my mortgage or should I not, is what interest rates you're currently getting. Ignore the stock component of your investment portfolio for the moment. And if we come back to the bond or the fixed income 
component of your portfolio. Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier that a 10-year treasury is paying you 0.6%. So if you've got some of your funds and you might not be in treasuries, you might be in a corporate bond, right? But you're still not getting a great interest rate on those corporate bonds. So an alternative argument might be, I would rather throw more money at paying down my mortgage because the interest rate that I'm paying on my mortgage is 3.25%. And the interest rate that I would get on investing in a bond might be two and a half percent. That would be a negative arbitrage of your assets. Or basically, you know, you've got money barely earning anything for you in your bonds. And meanwhile, you're paying three and a quarter on your mortgage. The stock market isn't always going up. Maybe when times are rough, like they were in 2009, paying off that mortgage is a better idea. Well, (laughs) depends on where you're pulling those funds from. If they're sitting in your safe area, yes. If you're selling out of your stocks at the bottom in 2009, Mm. no, David. (laughs) No, no, no. I wouldn't do that. Okay. (laughs) But that's why personally, it's worth the peace of mind to me to have somebody like you as a sounding board when I call because my friend... And he's like, dude, you got to just get into cash right now. What are you, nuts? And he's super smart. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's hard to argue against that. But I need a sounding board like you to tell me, no, just sit. So what's hard is that you can always you can always look and go, oh, my gosh, there's a reason that the market's about to fall off a cliff. Yeah. Um, I was reading a call that was titled, uh, The Dow Jones Went Crazy on Monday, Dropped a 1,000 points, or you know, dropped 1,600 points, and then... Uh, in the next five minutes came up 600 points to end the day only down a thousand. And I thought, oh, this must have been, you know, this must have been back in March. And I clicked on the article and it was actually from February of 2018. And I went, oh my gosh, that's right. You know, 2018 was a tough year for investing. So if you look around, you will always find somebody that is willing to tell you that the sky is about to fall. And this is the reason that you need to go to all cash. I guess what I would counter with is that if you go back to 1926, mm-hmm. um, over you know the nearly 100-year time frame that we've got to look at, there have been 25 bear markets and 26 bull markets. The average bear market is 299 days, whereas the average bull market is 1,003 days. 77% of times we're in a bull market. 22% of the times we're in a bear market. And so if you kind of think about that, you go, all right, the majority of the time we're in a bull market. So yes, you are going to encounter bear markets. There are going to be times when you're going to open up your monthly statement or for you, you're going to look annually and you're going to go, shoot, I'm down for the year. That is absolutely going to happen. Um, And if we could predict when that was going to happen, if we could predict when it was going to start and when it was going to end, certainly we would, you know, go to all cash to save you from that pain. But you come back and you look um, the end of 2018. So June to December of 2018, the market just kept marching downward. And then 2019, we had a raging bull market. If you would have not been, so I believe the bottom of that market um, was December 24th. Mm -hmm. The only reason I know this is because I had a conversation with a friend at New Year's and he said, I went to all cash in October and I'm so happy about my decision. I was like, that's great, Andy. When are you going to get back in? Well, at that point, he had already missed the bottom, which is not to say that he didn't get back in around where he sold in October. I don't know where he got back in. I didn't, I didn't press the issue after. Um, but it's really difficult to know when to get in and when to get out. So ultimately, the best predictor of your market returns is not trying to time the market. It's the amount of the time spent in the market, and it's getting those compound returns. And absolutely, it would be great to miss the years when you're down 12%. Um, If you could do that, you could call yourself Warren Buffett. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't even think that Warren Buffett thinks that he knows how to avoid those years. Probably not. I think he's more about figuring out which companies are overvalued and undervalued. May I may I mention something? Yes, please do. We've talked a lot about Roth versus traditional, or we haven't actually discussed Roth versus traditional. Right. Um, but I know that we get a lot of questions about yeah. Roth versus traditional. Most people don't really understand the difference. Very confusing. Um, and yeah, why one might be beneficial. A Roth is where you contribute uh, assets that you've already paid tax on. So it still has to be earned income. But taxes are taken out of that. You contribute that to uh, your Roth IRA, and those assets grow tax-free. So typically, if you have an, an investment, let's say you own Apple, Apple will pay you a dividend, and you will pay income to the government on that dividend. 
Um, and then if you sell Apple for more than you bought it for, you've got a capital gain. Anytime you sell something for more than you bought it for, you've got what's considered a capital gain. And in a traditional taxable account, you've got capital gains taxes do. So you go into a Roth IRA, you've got your after-tax money, but then you never pay taxes on that money again. And when you get into retirement, you can withdraw those funds without paying taxes on it. With a traditional IRA, you use pre-tax money. So your employer pays you, and before the government even takes its share, you tuck those dollars into a traditional IRA. Um, same concept about while the funds are in that traditional IRA, you're not paying taxes on any capital gains. You're not paying taxes on any dividends or interest income that comes to you that those stocks or bonds are throwing off. But then when you get into retirement, so the government has never touched this money. The government's never got any, any taxes from you on these funds. And so when those assets come out of that traditional IRA, and you are required at age 72 to start taking assets out because the government doesn't want these funds just never being taxed. Um, you pay ordinary income rates. Ordinary income rates are typically higher or are always higher than your capital gains rates. So capital gains are taxed at a favorable rate. For some people, there is a 0% capital gains rate. For most people, there is a 15% capital gains rate. And for high earners, there's a 20% capital gains rate. And then ordinary income rates, I'm sure you've everybody's sort of familiar with the tax brackets. Currently, you're topping out at 37% for top earners, marginal, marginal bracket. Again, when you're pulling money out of a Roth in retirement, no taxes due. So you pay taxes on the money up front but then you never pay taxes again. When you've got a traditional IRA, you save on paying taxes, you defer those taxes until down the road, but then in retirement, when you pull those funds out, now you're paying those ordinary income rates on the distributions. And so where you need to make the evaluation as to which makes sense, it's a guess between your tax rate now and your tax rate in retirement. Right now, we think that tax rates are, well, we know that tax rates are at historic lows. Um, there have been times in the past where that top tax rate, ordinary income rate, was up near 90%. Mm. So if you consider that right now, mm. your top tax rate, top marginal rate is 37%, we think you're looking at historically low interest rate, or excuse me, historically low um, tax rates mm. in addition to historically low interest rates. Um, so it makes sense to pay the taxes now, tuck those funds into a Roth, and again, leave them to grow until retirement. That's and then again, smart. never pay taxes on them again. Very, very smart. But if you're somebody that's up in a top, you know, if you're earning $800,000 this year, one, you're not eligible to contribute to a Roth IRA. But if you had the Roth 401k feature available towards you, you might go, you know what, in retirement, I'm not going to be making $800,000. So in that case, you may choose to put them in a traditional IRA. And what's hard about all that is just just a lot of unknowns. So much of what we're planning for is unknown. If, mm. if you said to me, look, I'm checking out October 22nd, you know, 2040, great. We're going to plan exactly how much you need to save. We'll tell you when you can retire and you'll be able to draw on those assets until you check out. But nobody knows, you know, when is my plan over? Nobody knows, you know, in 2042, what our tax rate's going to look like. All of a sudden, you may have health issues and you just never know. No, you don't. Everything is so uncertain. So that's another, I know I mentioned, when you are preparing for your financial life, it's not just investing. It is, do I have the appropriate amount of insurance? Do I have disability insurance? Do I have life mm -hmm. insurance? If God forbid... I've got a family and a mortgage and I'm the sole breadwinner and something happens to me. Um, so it's making sure that you've got that component taken care of. It is trying to encompass the tax planning. We touched on a Roth versus a traditional IRA, but there are a lot of other tax planning items. You know, if you're charitably minded, it is what is the best way of getting funds to, you know, to the charity that I'm hoping to donate to. It is estate planning. How do I make sure that when I pass away, my assets end up where I want them. And that's as easy as adding beneficiary designations on accounts. And it can get as complex as like a family limited partnership. Or I'm not sure, what was your field of law? I have touched on everything, but I, I've done my fair share of that because when I was a JAG, we were doing wills every two minutes for people. We did a lot of wills, but that that's something I'd like to interject on. A lot of people think of, oh, I just put it in my will. It's actually the best thing you can do is make sure that they're on the accounts as beneficiaries. Yes. Make sure that you put 
whoever you want to inherit your money from your accounts as beneficiaries and then alternate beneficiaries on your accounts, you should also do a will. But you really need to make sure you do that because that's going to avoid a lot of problems. Yeah. So I think one of the biggest ones is, is probate or a contested will. And you probably know a lot more about both of those than I do. You say, all right, I've finished my estate plan. I have my will. And in my will, I say that I want my bank account to go to my daughter, Sally, and I want my IRA to go to my you know, husband, Jim. Um, that's great. However, that will is going to go through probate. And typically, probate assets, you pay a percentage of the assets, typically, to the lawyer that's taking your assets through probate. Probate is considered open. So if I wanted to know where did David leave all of his money to, your probate account is public access. I can figure that information out. There's also the possibility of your son, Tommy, who wasn't in the will coming in and saying, hey, wait a minute, I want my fair share. Um, If you name a beneficiary designation on the account, that doesn't go through probate. So if you've got a bank account and it's a joint account with you and your spouse and you name your children as it's called like a payable on death or a transfer on death is typically what they're referred to as. But if you named the children, the children don't have any access to your account while you guys are both alive. But when you pass away, those assets go down to the children without going through probate. There's no question about where the assets are meant to go to. They get to your children without having to go through the courts. It's so many problems can be avoided. I mean, that that's huge what you just That said. really is huge. But again, I think a common miscon- misconception is that if you've got a will, you've got it all under control. And that's really not true. And coming back to another estate planning issue, figure out who you want to be making those medical and financial decisions for you in the event that something happens to you, just so that you're prepared. It's making sure that you've got everything buttoned up and that there aren't going to be, hopefully, any horrible surprises. So true. And that's another major point is, as human beings, we don't want to think about our death. That's just natural. But you got to think about it today because you never know if there's a tomorrow. And once you get sick, you get a terminal illness or something, you may not have time to deal with this stuff. Right. It's so it's so important. It's a psychological thing, like like with the mortgage or yeah, looking at the stock really, market. It is. It's really hard to mentally prepare yourself for your own death. And a lot of people, you're not unique in that regard. A lot of people put off their estate planning because you'd like to think that it's really far down the road and you don't have to worry about it. Just like planning for retirement, right? It's really far down the road. I don't have to think about it now, but you do. The one last thing that I wanted to touch on was the future of investing. Cause I think I proposed this to you before, like why not just throw my investments in like Vanguard and some computer bot and let it run my investments for me. And absolutely for some people that is the right decision. Because there are really great, you know, you've got Schwab who's got their robo-advisor. There are a number of robo-advisors out there that are really good. And so coming back to this, a lot of what we're doing now in the industry is the financial planning. And it is the, should you be contributing to a Roth or traditional IRA? How much should you be, you know, if you want to spend X amount in retirement, let's make this decision. Let's sit down. You know, you need to be fully funding your 401k, but also, you know, if, if you want this spend, maybe you're working till age 70 or, you know, it's making those decisions um, and it's making sure that people have, so like the topics that we've discussed, I'm looking at your IRA, your beneficiaries, you know, you've only got one child listed. Let's update that. Let's make sure that everything is going to go where you want it to go. Let's talk about, are you fully, you know, are you insured? What is your plan for the children's education? Do you have a 529 that you're funding? So I think for the financial services industry, a lot of where we're going is towards the planning side. That said, in March, I don't know if a robo-advisor would have sort of tried to talk you off the ledge when Lee was telling you you needed to go to cash. So I, I think that there is value in being able to reach out and speak to a human. You're still a little bit nervous after. Hopefully, you haven't gone to cash and we've been able to get you through that nerve-wracking time period. Well, I'd, I'll give you this example. Like I had Vanguard for years, and but I would call them you never get the same person twice. And when you dig them, they'd always go, we can't give you financial advice. I want financial advice. So I need somebody like you. Yeah, I, need to, but- I need somebody to, to, to bounce my ideas off of and maybe make me think of things I didn't think of. 
Yeah. But coming back to your, hey, for somebody that's just starting out, absolutely. Mm -hmm. A Vanguard robo-advisor, a Schwab robo-advisor. I mean, get your funds into, Mm -hmm. if you've got the additional funds, if you've got your emergency fund taken care of, if, you know, if you're saving for a house, if you've got sort of a safe pot of money, your savings account where you're building up funds for a house, when you've got the money that you're starting to put into the into the stock market, into um, a brokerage account, that's not a bad place to start. It's just as you start getting into, as you said, more complicated situations, it's helpful to have a human that you can bounce ideas off of. Definitely. A little tip here and there can be worth a lot of money. You can get significant tax savings just using various gifting strategies or, you know, moving funds. If you're getting to an to at a point where your state is so large, it can be helpful to start gifting to children. And it's that can save you a lot of money. Yeah, it's like uh, people, a lot of times over my career, people are going, well, thank God I've never needed a lawyer. And I kind of go, that's too bad you never need a lawyer because lawyers can make you money too. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And really, I mean, I, I think you think lawyer and you go, well, I'm glad I've never had a lawsuit, but I, it would really be great if... You've got your estates in order. If you've got that power of attorney, sort of hammering that home. Um, If you've got all of these documents in place. Definitely. Good financial advisor, good accountant, good lawyer, good doctor. Don't skimp on those things. Yeah. Yeah. No, get yourself a good team. When I got out of high school, I could do calculus, but they don't teach you anything about the law. You don't know what your Mm -hmm. legal rights are, and you are the first clue about what to do with your finances when those are two of the most important things you could possibly ever know. That and your health, your health, your legal rights, and your your financial future. How important is that? They don't teach it. Have you seen the meme, and it's the U.S. government, okay? You owe us a bunch of taxes. Me, cool. How much do I owe the government? You have to figure that out. Me. Okay. And what if I'm wrong? The government. You owe us more money. If people want to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of you? Our website is www.sigmainvestments.com. Before taking any financial advice, run it past your own advisor. Just because I've given you a suggestion or a recommendation does not mean that it's applicable to every single listener. Yes. Also, I should disclaim by saying I have not provided any legal advice. These are just my own thoughts. It's a lot of fun, and I think we got a lot of good stuff in there. Hopefully, we'll help somebody out. I hope so. Have a good night. You too. It's the Dave the Lawyer Podcast.